0: Welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, and this week is 1905. I am one of your hosts, Chris Ellie, I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I am Glenn Cobell,
1: I am a film editor and filmmaker. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Multi-hyphenates. I gotta get as many in there as I can. Yeah,
0: what else are you, Glenn? (laughs) Glenn? Uh, podcast host. Yeah! Yeah. (laughs) So. Um, so, uh, as we're a film history podcast, and right now we're talking about movies that are pre-sound and pre, uh, for the most part, and, and pre-copyright, um, you can watch along on YouTube, in the YouTube version where you can, uh, see... The movies while we're talking about them or uh there's a playlist on our youtube page as well where you can watch the movies with their uh original uh scores or or some score attached mm. to them hopefully um so how you doing glenn
1: i'm i'm doing i'm all right mm-hmm. keeping myself busy
0: yeah i am uh we're about to get to old rip himself but i'm reporting to you <laughs> from the land of rip van Winkle. Uh, in the Catskills, <laughs> yeah, I had to come up here to um, really live the experience of that Melies movie. Oh, you know, you're a, you're a
1: real, a real method podcaster.
0: Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, until actually, I watched. Uh, we'll talk about that stuff later. R- R- Rip Van okay. Winkle. It's in a second. Uh, but yeah. for now, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. <laughs> our 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 subheader, our tagline. Yeah. For now, uh, to give us a little context for the goings-on of the year 1905, Glenn, will you read us the news of the year?
2: The news of the year, 1905. The Trans-Siberian Railroad opens for business. It is the longest train ride in the world, taking four weeks to go from Moscow to Siberia. A ride in luxury for the first class, with marble-tiled bathrooms, a music hall with a grand piano, and sturgeon and caviar for dinner. In response to Russia losing the Russo-Japanese War and massacre of peaceful protesters, the first Russian revolution begins, setting the stage for later revolutions that form the USSR. That one sounded terrible, but we're going to keep it. Albert Einstein completes his doctoral dissertation and begins to submit a flurry of scientific discoveries. He begins to establish his theory of special relativity, and first publishes the famous equation E equals MC square. Las Vegas is founded, when the patch of desert to become the downtown strip is sold at auction. Lombardi's, the first pizzeria in the United States, opens in New York City. Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer are banned from the Brooklyn Public Library. They claim the books set a bad example for children. Mutiny breaks out on the Russian battleship Potemkin. Will this event inspire any film coverage? We'll find out soon. The ancient order of druids begin performing rituals at Stonehenge. News from the skies. The Wright Brothers' Wright Flyer 3 becomes the first aeroplane to stay in the air over 30 minutes. The Lumiere Brothers cease production of actualities, as new types of narrative film become the norm.
0: Thank you, Glenn, for bringing in that news. A lot of news. What? More? More news than is fit to speak about, <laughs> and yet we try. <laughs> um. So, uh, let's start with George Melies. Yeah. Uh, our 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 guy, our, our favorite guy, man. and a hard eyes emoji for him. Indeed. Um. So. Uh, I was talking about Rip's Dream, which right. is uh, one of the more one of the one of the more lavish in in a sense. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, a, a rather lavish Meliers film, uh, mm-hmm. which is a it's an adaptation of Rip Van Winkle, but it's kind local of local legend. Rip Van Winkle. local local legend. Land of the Catskills, Rip Van Winkle. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's a bit of a loose adaptation in some ways, uh, inexplicably, but um, uh, an adaptation nonetheless. Um, And yeah, I actually had—I actually was not like super familiar with the Rip Van Winkle story, and I'd always mixed it up with, um, oh God, uh, not Rasputin. Um, 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 um. <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin
1: Rumpelstiltskin
0: I always mixed up Rip Van Winkle and Rumpelstiltskin mm. um, Those R names Yeah exactly um, But yeah it wasn't until this like watching this and I was like maybe I should actually just like look at what the whole Rip Van Winkle deal is and I remember driving up here and seeing all of this stuff named after Rip Van Winkle, like right. the Rip Van Winkle Bridge. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize that it was a local situation. It's, oh, um, yeah. Yeah. It's set in the Catskills um, in in uh, around the time of the American Revolution.
1: Yeah. Washington Irving has all the good Hudson Valley uh, mythology.
0: Yeah. Including Sleeping Ho- Sleepy Hollow, which I didn't yeah. know was also his. Yeah. Um, and then Irvington in Westchester is named after him. There you go. So he's our guy, even though he wrote this from England <laughs> and, <laughs> had not, and had not been into the Catskill mountains when he wrote Rip Van Winkle. Um, really? That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so this is called Rip's Dream. So it focuses, well, it reinterprets the events of Rip Van Winkle mm. as it was all a dream. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right yeah which is very much not what the original story is right um but I mean yeah the um Melies definitely does take a kind of loose approach with the plot he kind of keeps a lot of the uh like the, the set, ideas the, the set pieces I guess <laughs> yeah. um but then does add a lot of Meliers stuff to it mm-hmm. um and also gives it a much happier ending which I, I thought was rather pleasant I suppose that is true.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a melancholic flavor to the ending of Rip Van Winkle originally, you mm-hmm. know, like all, all the people that he loves have died and or or moved on from him. Um I I had initially thought because this was called Rip's Dream that this was literally just like supposed to be what he was dreaming about in those 20 years mm-hmm. uh, that he was asleep. It rewrites the beginning of the story, too, so that Rip is kind of like this scoundrel that's being chased by <laughs> the townspeople. Um, and he hides out in the woods and falls asleep in the woods. And then what uh, is, is normally the part where he's just exploring in the woods and runs into uh, these uh, ghostly figures who give him ghost ghost ale to make him fall asleep, um, uh instead he dreams about these ghostly figures and imps of course mm-hmm. um, that, that uh that uh he gets to play with for a little bit in the
1: woods yeah there's a there's a giant snake mm-hmm. uh that he has to fight which is a very Melia's touch yep <laughs> um uh i i did have in my notes uh this like pretty much all of milies's movies has uh sort of painted backdrops as as the set yeah um and uh, I think that the, his paintings of the woods are still a better depiction of the Hudson Valley than anything on the show Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> Which I'm just taking this opportunity to rag on the show Sleepy Hollow for being uh-huh. shot in Georgia. And it very much looks like Georgia and not upstate New York. At oh, all. man. <laughs> um, just want to get that little dig in there. Um, yeah, I, I kind of... Exp- I didn't really read much about this before watching it. And so I kind of expected it to be... A pretty short, kind of slight, like, ooh, Rip Manical falls asleep and like dreams a bunch of crazy stuff, and yeah. that's that's it. Um, and it ended up being kind of one of the more like narratively ambitious movies that I think we've seen from Milliers. Hmm, I suppose so. It's like communicating
0: some, uh, some complex goings on with with the whole dream and out of dream scenario. I suppose. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um. And it it works very well without really a lot of uh, like foreknowledge of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it tells a pretty clear story just on its own. And it's like it's it has both kind of the fantastical things we're used to seeing from L.A.s, but it feels uh, I think a little bit more heartfelt than some mm. of the other ones. Hmm. Yeah, like you know the the scene of of Rip kind of going back into town and and uh, you know no one recognizes him and all of his friends and family are dead or old. Yeah. And he's just sort of like, like that. I don't know. That was like, that was a heavy scene. Hmm. Um, and then the, the aforementioned sort of new happy ending where he wakes up and he isn't old. He, he was just asleep the whole time. It is kind of like um, a, you
0: learned your lesson sort of movie to yeah. appreciate your, to appreciate your life as you
1: have it now. Kind of thing. Um, but yeah, and there's like, you know, we see the same kind of time town square uh, in two different times, and so like it looks really different in the two different times. Like there's a tree in one, and there's I don't know. Like I thought yeah. that element of it was was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of these movies, because of their low fidelity or low production values, uh, end up like the the locations and characters. Uh, end up getting a little muddled sometimes and it's a little hard to tell but in in rip's dream um the the kind of visual structure of the 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 town in olden times and the town in the future uh it's like f- it, it, it comp- it's composed the same way in the shot and it's very and like he enters the town in the same mm-hmm. way and at both points and so it's very clear what is happening uh, it's telling yeah. it's it's very easy to to tell you know in so many of these old movies it's kind of hard to tell what's going on at, like <laughs> even just like a fundamental level you know and, yeah uh and he makes it clear because of his like so gorgeously painted
1: and, and well-considered backdrops
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um as as any good film should do it, it tells the story through visuals very well
0: mm-hmm. well except for a rare thing for uh Melies is that there is a uh, an intertitle in this movie, um, which it's an intertitle that is portrayed diegetically, um, where it, it, there's Mm. a big sign that says in five languages, waking up and coming back to reality toward the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, which it's portrayed as like a sign that is in inside of the movie, (laughs) but it's like, it, uh, it's, it's showing you the, uh, the arc of the story, I suppose, or the 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 what an intertitle would do ordinarily.
1: Yeah, I never really thought of that because yeah, it isn't it isn't really an intertitle. It it is kind of incorporated into the into the shot, which is fun. I think that's a fun yeah. way to do an
0: intertitle. And I, I thought it, it it also spoke to uh, the growing internationality of his movies that it was in like five languages.
1: Yeah, one after the other on the sign. Um, that is a very good point. Like. It's it is kind of clear now that he he is making these for an international audience at this point, mm-hmm. which is uh, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Um. Well, an- another more more George Maya's movies that we watched. Yep. Are, uh, the Palace um, of the Arabian Nights. Yeah. Or, or yeah, the Palace of One Thousand and One Nights, which I think is kind of a more accurate title hmm to what it's like intended to be um because it it is kind of like taking loose inspiration of the the stories from thousand and one nights yeah it's a bit of a it's a bit of a
0: pastiche it's kind of just um you know it heard those stories and it just
1: wanted to tell its own vaguely similar story (laughs) yeah yeah um this one is, is uh, at least the the version of it on YouTube that I watched is kind of weird in that there were a lot of uh, mid-scene print changes. Um, oh. Hmm. Like, a lot of uh, a lot of Melies movies at this point have like, they're kind of standard black and white prints and then he would do a, a color print also. Um, you know, a hand-painted color print. Um which uh, were apparently very expensive and may have contributed to his, his sort of financial troubles uh, later on. Um, but usually on, on YouTube, it'll either be uh, a color or a black and white one. This one switches back and forth a couple of times um, or switches back and forth between different black and white prints. It's, it feels very kind of Frankenstein together.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's sometimes what you would have to do for footage that's mm-hmm. uh, so missing. I think there's there's already stuff missing from this movie um, that, uh, uh, that was still never found, but they were able to cobble some of it together. Yeah. I think that was the case for A Trip to the Moon, too. And the, the color version, the full color version that you've seen has colors that are sort of from black and white scenes. They added colors that are mimicking the colors that
1: they had seen oh, in, other, in other parts. Hmm. Um. um I didn't really follow the plot of this uh, super well. Um cuz it is kind of just like a bunch of a bunch of things happening. <laughs> um but it reminded me a lot of Kingdom of the Fairies and also uh, The Magic Sword which was mm-hmm directed magic sword i don't remember uh oh was that um that was one of the brits i think yeah um but it you know it has like that same kind of like fairy tale quest structure to it
0: yeah um it uh well so the version that i saw was the um from the flicker alley collection which had someone reading um i'm trying to remember the word for it there's the uh he sent out um he sent out like booklets along with his films to uh, to the screening houses uh, that had sort of text that was supposed to be read by a presenter out loud in front of these movies. Mm. Um, uh, and so the the Flicker Alley version has somebody reading that text. Did Did you see one like that, or did you see one uh, with music? I don't think I
1: did. I think I saw it. Okay. With music.
0: So that. Helped a lot, actually. Um, sure. uh, Hold on. Let me see if I can find the name. Bonamance. For his longer films, such as this one, Melies prepared abridged versions of his catalog descriptions, known as Bonamance, intending for them to be read by a narrator during projection of the film to provide additional details to the viewers. Um, So, basically, this movie it's not intended to be watched without somebody
1: describing what's happening over it. Um, that's, that's so funny to me because, uh, there is like a specific thing. Um, at least when I went to, uh, to film school where they're like, everyone watching this isn't going to have you sitting in the theater with them to explain like what's wrong (laughs) with it. And it's funny that Melies is like, no, 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 read this. Like, uh, is like he he literally wants someone to explain the movie while people are watching it, which is is so funny that is that is now a thing that people say is like that that isn't a thing like you can't do that. Well, um, yeah, it's interesting. It kind of speaks to different,
0: um, you know, people experimenting with how to tell stories in movies mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Right, there are people who are opting, as is the case usually for Melies there are people opting for uh, visual storytelling. There are people opting for intertitles, um, and there are people opting for this, which I think at the time seemed like a pretty legitimate option, since Mm -hmm. there was always a presentation. There was always somebody there presenting the movies, and so you might as well uh, take some of the workload off of the visuals uh, on telling the story and put it onto the person who was already there in the first place. It just makes this movie less coherent visually uh, without that information, and it makes it less stand the ten- stand the test of time mm. less. Yeah. It doesn't
1: work on YouTube so well, you know. No. I mean, it's still very entertaining and it's still you know, I'm never bored watching it. Mhm. It's but it's uh, you know, it is kind of just like one new crazy thing after the other and there's not really a whole lot of uh narrative necessarily holding yeah. it together without I mean, specifically
0: uh what the story is which is described in in the Flickr alley version is that um there's prince charming or prince smiles um <laughs> in <laughs> in, hey, in french Prince smiles um and he wants like the hand of the daughter of the raja um in in marriage and
1: he no, just just her hand <laughs>
0: Uh, and he's rebuffed because by her father because there's a rich man who uh, he's going to um, give his daughter to instead. And so uh, Prince Charming is sad, and he knocks over a kerosene lamp, and a genie comes out. That's and okay. the genie um, the genie tells him like, "Hey, I'll sol- I'll help you solve your problems. I'll give you a quest, and at the end of the quest, you'll find a bunch of money, and then." when you when the the guy sees that you have tons of money you'll get the princess's uh uh hand in marriage you'll also level up <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah it's it's him uh going through his um rpg quest of uh of fighting skeletons and whatnot mm-hmm. um but speaking of skeletons um i one of my favorite parts uh in in this movie is this fight scene with the skeletons mm-hmm. um where they 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 show the um the chaos of the fight scene by having the skeletons all on one double exposure layer and just do, making them slashing swords and doing all this other kind of stuff, and then all of the other people on another layer, so you effectively have like eight people all like on top of each other, and it kind of gives the illusion of like three dimensionality in the fight
1: yeah kind of um and yeah the sense that they're all kind of just, like intermit- like yeah, he's ha- he's shooting two plates of people just kind of fighting the air wildly and then l- layering them on top of each other. So it's just this sort of chaotic crowd of people swinging swords. Yeah. Um but yeah, it works. Um This uh yeah. this movie is another one that is f- featured pretty uh heavily in uh in Hugo, kind of showing Meliès actually making stuff. Um but it's a bit more I think Scorsese takes a bit more kind of creative creative liberties with it. Um in the movie Hugo when they're doing the skeleton fight, the skeletons uh get killed in puffs of smoke, a la trip to the moon, which they don't actually in this movie. Um oh. there's a, and there's a big a big kind of practical dragon puppet um in Hugo, which is based on a like an illustration that Melies did for this movie but the dragon and oh, the dragon in the movie is kind of just a big snake it's not like this kind of classical dragon looking thing uh um but i thought, I thought that was that was kind of cool it was well like, i um
0: i didn't realize that, that that this was the movie that they were supposed to be filming in in those flashback scenes in hugo
1: yeah yeah um the like the backdrops are pretty much identical, the costumes are pretty much identical. There's like the skeleton fight, but it's he's he's kind of combining a couple different things together just to kind of show off Melier's mm-hmm. doing his dif- his different tricks, even though all of them aren't actually in this movie. Um <laughs> but that was kind of it was cool after watching this to go back and watch that section of Hugo um of the fake making of um, uh, yeah, I love
0: that scene. I keep rewatching it.
1: Yeah. Um I do have another note for this movie, which I'm not really sure where this came from, but it's just is Jupiter Ascending the modern equivalent of MLA's movie? Um I, I still I, need I, to see that. I stand by that, actually. I think uh <laughs> Jupiter Ascending has a quality of just sort of like wild imagination and just sort of like throwing everything at the screen. Regardless of whether or not it really makes sense, um, and so it's just sort of like you're getting bombarded by like new things every single scene, hmm. and that that is kind of how this movie feels a little bit. It's like skeleton fight, dragon, underwater thing. Yeah. Like it's a series um, of quests. I mean, I think your your RPG
0: game anal- uh, analogy is apt. Yeah, um, it's it's cool thing after cool thing, and then he wins <laughs> gold at the end.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he gets his loot
0: <laughs> i guess one other thing that i would mention is uh, this isn't really specifically elaborated on without the narration i think um but toward the end of the movie there are some dancers and they represent nymphs of gold um and so it, they're they, they kind of dance around uh, as he is receiving the gold loot um and i thought it was interesting cuz it reminded me sort of of uh ballet um mm. where uh the the action that's happening i don't think is like supposed to be particularly literal of mm-hmm. what you're what what you're looking at right in front of you they they're representing the gold that he is seeing in front of him and then representing it through dance which is which is kind of neat yeah. um it's, it's very impressionistic it's not the, like the kind of thing that um, we're used to seeing I think
1: Well it's like a lot of um, both Meliez's movies and some some of the other filmmakers from this uh, these couple last couple of years have been doing sort of like these tableaus at the end mm-hmm. where sort of like most or some of the actors will sort of show up in this like staged sort of posing as is a way to kind of represent the movie as a whole at the end yeah. um and that kind of feels similar in that sense where it, it isn't really meant to be taken literally it is a kind of impressionistic uh i don't know like summation mm-hmm. um i mean it's yeah. like a curtain call in a way
0: mm-hmm. um all sometimes even includes bowing um, yeah true in some of the
1: older ones <laughs> um it is really cool to see that though, because it it is kind of like taking taking inspiration from forms of of performance that films don't really tend to take a lot of inspiration from anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's the kind of thing that's probably
0: easier to get away with in a silent film, but mm-hmm. you don't you don't see you don't tend to see in films these days. Um, ballet dancers coming onto screen to represent an abstract idea <laughs> and then the movie kind of comes back to normal again yeah you know
1: it's it's rare but it's it, it is very cool when that sort of thing happens in, mm-hmm. in the movie nowadays um yeah and that's it's certainly not uh unique to this movie there are some others from this year that also do that yes um i don't know if you want to get into that right now or talk about the other Melies movies we watched. Well, let's
0: finish out Melies. Maybe we should have done this if we if we'd planned this a little better, we could have uh, had, a, had talked a, of, a great segue, but a we ruined super, it. Perfect segue. Yeah, uh, um, we're just ruining all of our segues today. <laughs> speaking
1: of uh, segues, things mm-hmm. with wheels, an adventurous automobile trip. <laughs> good seg. Good seg.
2: <laughs> don't don't
1: patronize me. Um, this I think. I'm going to go ahead and call it as the first road trip movie. Okay. I mean, you wouldn't call it the, uh, that um,
0: that one from a couple of years, that Melies one from a couple of years ago where they do all the different forms of transport.
1: Well, because that's like different forms of transport. That's like a, like a like a travel movie. This is like okay. a road trip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I buy it. Yeah. If you're flying this- a, 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 a sort of airship train to the sun, that's not really a road trip. <laughs> It's more of like a Bill and Ted kind of road
0: trip situation. Yeah. whereas this
1: is straight up just like two guys in a car, having fun, making trouble.
0: Yeah, this movie is so zany and fun. <laughs> I I really like
1: it a lot. <laughs> it is. It's also it's made so much funnier. Like, it's already a funny like slapstick movie, but it's mm-hmm. it's so much funnier to me knowing the historical context of it, mm-hmm. and like how it was intended to be seen. Um so that the plot of this is a king who in some like presentations of the movie is named as king leopold II of belgium who is a, a sort of contemporary world monarch at the time um who was also who was famous for driving and crashing fast cars and atrocities <laughs> um we don't have to get into the second part, because that is a lot of heavy things that we know. Oh no! About. <laughs> um, but the other thing, apart from the atrocities that he was well known for, was drive driving and crashing fast cars. Fast and, cars,
0: relative to 1905, yeah. I
1: suppose. <laughs> um, so in the movie, he he and I guess like a car engineer or a friend um, drive from Paris to Monte Carlo. Uh, I forget why. Because the train is too slow. Right. Um, so he needs a, he, a very fast car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, the, the French release of this movie did not specify the sort of king character as Leopold II, because they didn't want to avoid any yeah. Belgian audience members. Even though I think
0: it, like, it like implied it very... Yeah. It's like... Very, rather
1: explicitly, but I never mean, said. I mean, the movie itself doesn't say. It's just sort of, like, a caricature of this guy. Mm-hmm. Um but, I mean, like, the release notes and things didn't. Like, the, the if there was a narration, that wasn't part of it. Yeah. Um, whereas the American release did specify that it was King Leopold II, because they weren't worried about any Belgians living in America, I guess. <laughs>
2: um,
1: and it's just kind of a bunch of scenes of them driving through different places, causing lots of hijinks. And uh, and 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 mayhem,
0: yeah, yeah. This movie feels, I mean, in in a way, it feels like a road trip movie. Uh, but it, in another way, it feels more like a. I, I would say maybe more specifically, it feels more. like It feels like a a zany race movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's a mad, 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 mad world, or or like a um. Uh. A cannonball or cannonball run sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, um oh the gumball rally is is a cannonball run movie that right. is a little more silly. What's um, the
1: what's the um what's the Mr. Bean one? It's not a Mr. Rat Bean race. Movie. Rat race.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, but this movie's so silly and zany and, and it includes <laughs> another person being smushed flat. By a car, like that steamroller <laughs> thing that we saw a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and then they have to blow him up with like a bicycle pump, and it's, it's a very silly scene. Uh, the car crashes into so many
1: objects Everything. and people. <laughs> yeah. It just destroys things. It like drives through walls, it knocks people over, it like runs people over, straight up just like uh, trashes, you know, like fruit stands and things. I think this might be the, the first time where, like, a car drives through a, like, a fruit stand, which is a pretty classic, like, car chase right. move. Yeah. Um, It possibly reuses the, like, miniature set from The Impossible Journey of, like, the car going over mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's actually the same miniature or if it's just a similar looking one. It's a similar,
0: uh, yeah, I'm not sure either, but it's... It is a very similar i think I think it wouldn't be because in in an impossible journey um they they were going over like mostly the Alps, I think right mm-hmm. maybe this is also supposed to be the Alps, actually, but um there seems to be more types of terrain that the car is going over, so mm-hmm. it might be a different background, but it's the same technique which initially I thought it looked like it was the 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 camera was moving along a long painting, and then the car mm-hmm. was moving with it but apparently uh it was like a scrolling background and the camera was stationary oh wow Um, cool and so they were just moving the car over this over this background that was kind of just moving along a giant like (laughs) treadmill (laughs) sideways uh, basically um and it it looks pretty fun you know it's a a good way of doing a a big big uh uh, wide like pulled out shot Mm -hmm. and showing a lot of stuff which uh the, the same technique is done in the um, uh, Edwin S. Porter uh, uh, "Night Before Christmas" movie. Oh, year that's right. Yeah, with the sleigh.
1: Um. Yeah, uh, I don't really think any of their Melies movies are. Or or what what um, the one you want to talk about the, uh, the uh, sedan chair. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. I guess I was like.
0: One other thing is that um this movie was meant to be uh not necessarily played on its own but as a oh. part of a yeah yeah <laughs> as a part of a uh a broader multi um uh multi-form Do you Mul- know the word multi- for that?
2: Multimedia?
0: Multimedia.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was like part of a whole show. That started as, like, a live sketch or, like, a live theatrical production and then went Mm -hmm. into the film and then continued back as, like, a live show with the same actors from the film.
0: Yeah. So, so cool. It's a fun idea, you know, that they have people playing these characters and they're doing stuff that is limited to a stage presence. And then they say, oh, we're going to go off and go on a race across Europe and, um, and then they play the
1: film of those characters. They step off the stage and then step back onto the stage. It's so cool. Like, I'm trying to imagine what that would like. How cool would it be if like the next oceans movie, it's like at the end, it's just like Brad Pitt and George Clooney come out and just continue the movie alive. (laughs) That's so cool. It let it's, it's fun because it lets you
0: use the different strengths of the different mediums. Uh, uh, for 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 their own purposes and telling a broader story, mm-hmm. which is um, uh, the the great thing about any kind of multimedia work.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a good example of sort of how film at this point hasn't really coalesced into the sort of strict understanding I guess we have of it as like how it's mm-hmm. presented and how it's meant to be used. Yeah. Um, and so it is cool to see that kind of like experimentation, just like. No, it's, like, just one of these tools of, like, entertainment that we have at our disposal. Hmm. Um, and it feels, it feels very like Melies to kind of try to combine a lot of those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially because he has more of a theatrical mind toward his film presentations. Yeah, um, for sure. There, there's one other Melies movie that I wanted to talk about just a bit. Uh, which was one of one of his trick movies that he uses as filler between his big projects <laughs> um as, it's called the enchanted sedan chair and the notable thing about it is that um it uh so in a lot of in a lot of these trick films uh, they'll do um it, rather than doing a a jump cut uh, or or um what would, what's that term the um the
1: substitution splice
0: yeah, exactly a substitution splice uh, they've started dissolving from one cut to another to kind of make it seem more magic-y, right mm-hmm. um, this uh, so ordinarily like a magician would kind of point a wand at something and the magician would freeze and then uh the it would slowly fade from one shot to another. Uh, And the thing would transform and the magician would stay in place, but the magician has to just stand completely locked still while the transformation is happening, which takes a couple seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, And it always kind of makes it obvious what's happening. um, That, that there isn't some kind of magic thing happening. They're just doing a slow transition from one scene to another because literally everything, but the thing transforming has to pause in place. Right. And, The cool thing about the Enchanted Sedan Chair is I think Melies was dissatisfied with that effect. And so in the Enchanted Sedan Chair, he has the magician stand behind a black, in front of a black surface, uh, which means that the magician can be on a separate um, exposure of the film. And so he can keep waving his wand around and moving while the transition happens. Uh, which is so so cool, like combining those two effects to cover up the seams of of the mm-hmm. other one, um, and I I I uh, I'm, I was just so impressed by it. It's so imaginative uh, of a, of a way to uh, sell that effect better, um, and the movie itself is you know, it's a simple trick film, but mm-hmm. that that effect um, is just him iterating on this effect that everybody's using nowadays, this dissolve, this magic dissolve from one to another one, one shot to another, but, uh, uh, he just makes it so much better. I love it.
1: <laughs> it is, it is, I a good example of sort of Meliers not, uh, not being satisfied with good enough. Like he's always trying to improve upon all of his effects. Yeah. And, and cover up the seams like, um, in him, there is like a new effect and it starts to kind of, uh gain popularity and show up in more and more movies it feels like he's like ah like this is boring now i need to improve it in some way um <laughs> there's any good example of that there's also i mean there's like there's cool like he i think he uses like like reversed film in a couple places to make things look like there's like they're springing out of a, of a box oh huh um it's definitely like it's not it is just like a magician doing magic tricks which he's done like hundreds of times at this point. Um but it is definitely a good sort of like a good example of him kind of iterating on his old techniques. Yeah. Um
0: well, we had a good we had a good segue into uh the hen that laid the golden eggs, but since we're talking about uh advances in formal technique. Maybe we should talk about uh what Alice Guy Blanchet is doing, right? Uh,
1: oui.
0: Um more of the French. Um our our beloved French. Mm. Um and I think in her this is this is Alice Guy Blanchet's uh final year as the only female director. Um <laughs> And in her last year of 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 that uh, designation, she's doing some really 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 cool um experimentation
1: mm-hmm.
0: um which i think some a lot of which wasn't intended on uh wide distribution because it would be technically impossible um but it was shown mm-hmm. in the in a in a specific theater in france um where people could see the the some of these more technologically advanced films that she was making. Um, and, uh, they were, so they were synchronized sound, um, uh, sound on disc. Mm. Um, there was a, the, she worked for the Gaumont company, mm-hmm. um, uh, founded by Leon or, or run by Leon Gaumont. I don't know how to pronounce still, that.
1: Still, uh, Gaumont. Gaumont. Um still uh still trucking, still going. Still yeah. still making movies. That company. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And um uh like a lot of these people from this era, he he was an inventor and he invented this device called a chronophone. Um Such a good name. <laughs> uh and it was um made to synchronize uh playing of silent film along with uh playing a record. Yeah. Um and so she recorded, she made a few movies um of singers performing songs uh mm-hmm. right in front of the camera. Um and what they're doing is they're lip-syncing to the on set they played a uh, a record out of a gramophone and uh, they the, the singer lip-synced to the record that was being played and then they played that record again in the presentation in synchronization with the lips on the, on the yeah. performance. Um, and so it... Uh, uh, <laughs> it looks so good. Um, also, at least one of these that I watched had color.
1: Yeah, and like really realistic looking color I couldn't yeah. tell, it didn't look like it was painted I don't think it was I think it might have, I mean we know that Someone cracked it by this point Of like how to how to shoot uh, Color, with picture film yeah. So I don't, I don't know for a fact if it was um, But it, it definitely It reminded me a lot of those like experimental Early color films that we watched mm-hmm. So, I mean uh, I don't know I'm willing to believe that <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it, the, this one called felix my performs indiscreet questions mm-hmm. uh is i think the one that was in color and with sync sound yeah um crazy and it it, it blew my mind it looks so realistic um the mouth movements aren't perfect but they're pretty close they, they're pretty close yeah <laughs> Um and it was, so it wasn't sound recorded on set, which I think it you know, doesn't count it as the
1: distinction of synchronized sound right or, yeah but, um, but it's still like yeah, I think it is a, a step up from the uh, the W. K. Dixon soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, the,
0: yeah, it's it's essentially the way a music video is filmed, mm, where yeah. the, where they're lip syncing to the audio on set, um, and th- th- these things that she was making, she made a couple other ones. Uh, they're called photosends, I believe, um, which is sort of. It's, it's a record a, a, a movie, a short movie of somebody singing a song and uh, it's a proto music video in I, love,
1: way. I love how all of these things sound like uh, they're from Bioshock
2: <laughs> which I guess is, is,
1: is the other way around like Bioshock sounds like something from the early 20th century yeah. Um, but yeah I mean there was a uh, so there's the, the chronophone which is the French sort of projector uh, phonograph synchronization device there was one from the US also called Vitaphone, which I'm pretty sure is actually a name from in the FireShock game. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um but yeah, I just I, I I wish new technology sounded like that. I wish, you know. Right. Apple would come out with the the, you know Chromatograph
0: <laughs> We we don't go to our uh Greek and Latin roots as much. With, no. When we invent new devices, uh, we want them to be, we want them to be called, I don't know, iPhones, <laughs> and, and not uh, Vitagraphs televisions.
1: <laughs> True, te- television is well. I don't know. It could have a cooler name. I suppose so. Yeah. Um,
0: there was one other thing that she did, uh, or that was associated with her uh this year where it is a behind the scenes shot of her filming it's called Alice Guy Alice Gee films a Photosyn. oh i didn't see that um and it is pulled way back um and it's showing the entire set so you can see the lighting and you can see the backdrop and you can see the camera and the um the giant uh gramophone that they were using to uh sync all of their uh sound to uh, and you see aliski in the foreground or in in the foreground of it uh directing the 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 photo scene that um that is being shot from way back and so you could consider that the first um behind the scenes movie
1: yeah um that's incredible i did not watch that one and i'm gonna watch that immediately after we're done recording because that sounds amazing yeah um, there was another thing that she did this year, which unfortunately is lost. But it was the first film adaptation of *The Hunchback of Notre Dame*. Oh, I um, know about that. Called *Esmeralda* after the character from *Hunchback of Notre Dame*. Um, I I wish it wasn't lost because I I very much want to see it. But um, yeah, there's there's no known surviving prints of it. it's a shame yeah uh what was the one we were gonna transition to but completely whiffed it
0: (laughs) so that was our final uh well i guess it's not our final european movie it's our final french movie of of this episode which is the hen that laid the golden eggs which is by gaston Vell. um who has been working a bit with Ferdinand zecca, but this mm-hmm. one he did by himself and it's... and got
1: got his start with the um Lumiere brothers I believe
0: yeah, yeah, I think so so this guy's been uh been been in the biz for a little while, but he was really coming into his own in the nineteen oh four nineteen oh
1: five yeah time so this movie's stunning this movie's amazing I mean it's 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 very similar. To Amelier's movie, it feels very similar stylistically to his stuff, um, but it is, I guess, a uh, just a kind of a loose adaptation. Is it an adaptation of a of a fairy it tale? Seem,
0: it seems kind of loose. It's like an Aesop fable. Yeah, right. Like the, yeah.
1: Of, um, I guess, a uh, of a farmer who buys a a, a goose at like a raffle. Well, not just buys
0: a loose... Because, uh, 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 wins uh, a goose a, at a yeah, not a goose, a, a a hen at a wizard lottery, right? A
1: wizard lottery. Excuse
0: me. <laughs> a wizard comes into town with a with a golden egg laying goose, and then says, hen. "Who wants it's it?" It's not a goose;
1: it's a hen. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes. Um, yeah, and so he picks a number, and the the wizard spins a wheel, and he he lands on his number, and so he gets the hen. There's also uh. The introduction to this scene is is um, sort of the farmer arriving at the I guess the town square, and it we get a kind of pan across the set, which is kind of a um, definitely a not really something that Melies does much. He doesn't do a lot of camera movement at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas this has like a nice sort of like pan across to reveal like more of the scene, which is cool. Um, there is. At the beginning we see like a big pile of of stuff that people are kind of picking through, and a guy comes up and just picks up a sword. Pretty casually, it's like, oh, I guess I'll I'll be taking this. <laughs> um yeah, so the the farmer brings the, the hen home, shows it to his wife, and puts it in with the the rest of the hens that they have on the farm. And there's a, a sort of scene transition I guess where the the different hens turn into like ba- ballet chickens mm-hmm. like
2: women yeah. women
1: in like chicken costume who then perform a sort of chicken ballet
0: yeah in a similar way to um, uh, Arab- the Arabian Nights movie it's it's uh, I wrote a chickeny ballet to symbolize eggs being laid yeah <laughs> um
1: and it's great (laughs) uh
0: yeah it's it's really fun it's another another one of those impressionistic
1: touches yeah uh so then from there um oh man what happened next a lot happens in this movie yeah uh
0: well he brings he he's a poor farmer he brings the the hen back to his farm and then uh the hen starts laying golden eggs or, or the, wait there's some there's some kind of bumbling thief characters that like steal
1: like a fish or something they they steal of... a rabbit um kind mm-hmm. of right in front of them they kind of show up to the farm and steal one of the rabbits um i believe one of the thieves is the guy who, who picks out the sword at the beginning which is a nice bit of sort of character continuity yeah um and they they kind of don't
0: realize it but it doesn't even really matter because the hen starts Laying golden eggs and then kind of smash cut to them being fabulously
1: wealthy <laughs> in in a castle or mansion. Yeah um, and from there it gets even even crazier.
0: yeah. Um, what what would you describe as happening? Like he was kind of trying to like get the 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 hen to start laying eggs like faster or something like that. He had the hen in his in his uh, basement. And he was like going to check on it. Well,
1: before that, the thieves uh, show back up, Mm -hmm. having now realized that these, this couple has a a magical uh, hen, the Mm Lay's Golden Eggs. And so they, they sort of, you, you see them like climb up through the balcony, over the balcony and come in and try to steal one of the eggs and this this far in the movie, every time an egg has been... These sort of oversized big eggs. And every time that one breaks open, just a bunch of gold coins pour out. Yeah. And so the thieves come in and they get one of the eggs and they break it open and a bat comes out. Um, yeah, it's, it's like they've corrupted the chicken and, and the yeah. eggs. Yeah. Um. And so that, that kind of scares them off. And then the, the farmer comes back and he, I guess, yeah, he is dissatisfied with the the riches that he is he has been living off of um and yeah i'm not entirely sure what the intent of this scene is but um oh yeah also when the the thieves get hold of the egg it cuts to a close-up a sort of painted close-up of hands holding an egg yeah and oh. we see a a devilish face appear in the egg and spit out a bunch of coins.
0: Yeah, it was so like I, it blew me away when I saw that. Like, because it's most of it is fil- filmed in this pulled back Melier style, and then all of a sudden, just like extreme close up on some hands holding an egg, uh, in and the hands are the hands are painted, the egg is painted, and then it's a superimposed devil face, and it's. Um, it looks so good. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, it almost reminded me of those, um, like, extreme close-ups that, I, I mean, I don't know if you have this frame of reference, Glenn, but the in Spongebob and um, Ren and Stimpy, how they'll have these, like, really extreme close-ups of things in almost like a grotesque way. Um, anyway, it seemed kind of like that. I, uh, I,
1: I I understand what you're talking about, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Um, I think after, after the, the, the thieves see the guy go into like a secret compartment in his floor. And then they, once he leaves, they follow him downstairs or they, they go downstairs to try and get the chicken, um, or, or the eggs, whichever came first. Um, (laughs) And just all, like, things start going wrong. The chicken magic starts getting corrupted.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, does it. (laughs) There, yeah, eyes appear in the walls. Multiple sets of eyes. Yeah, like, beaming down, like, horror. Um, (laughs) These people. A bunch of arms come out of the, like, come out of the walls, I guess. Sort of, like, double-exposed arms. Kind of reaching out from the sides of the frame, yeah, towards towards the guy. Um, was there anything else?
0: Uh, I think was there was there a title card that said Satan punishes the miser?
1: Uh, I think that's later. Okay. Um, I think that's later when, uh, when when he's gonna he's gonna kill the chicken. Um, right. Yeah. Having I guess having lost its ability to make golden eggs. Or or just stopped. Um, he he takes the chicken into sort of a, another room and he's going to stab it. Um, and I I I guess, think he he does kill the chicken, right? Uh, I'm not sure. I guess so. Yeah. But then, um, yeah. Then then Satan appears and scares him. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Satan punishes the miser and transports him to Eggland.
1: Yeah. <laughs> to a sort of yeah, I like. Uh, it, on a, a sort of chicken palace, where we see the 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 egg dancers, once again.
0: Yeah, the golden egg dancers, and it looks like they're inside of almost like a giant um, like greenhouse, uh, but with giant like egg sculptures and chicken accoutrements inside. Um, and there's more there's more ballet dancing, uh, but it's almost like aggressive ballet dancing.
1: And then. At, and then they drag him off screen and we never really find out what happened to him. I have to assume he was either eaten or turned into an egg.
0: Yeah, some kind of horrifying punishment that was not yeah. fit for this for this film. Yeah.
1: Um and then we kind of end on another little dance number.
0: Yeah. A more
1: macabre one maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, my overall impression of this movie is definitely like how kind of slick and and lavish it is, especially for a guy who had hasn't really been releasing a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um it seems like he's been kind of like working his way up to this slowly and is now coming out with like very uh very fully formed, well-made movies. Yeah, and I mean it's um it's long.
0: Uh it's on the long side, but it's it doesn't drag like yeah.
1: like an American movie would of this like. Oh my god. Yeah. It it uh, a lot happens in it. It it goes by pretty quick. I did actually have the thought watching it. I'm like, how are the European filmmakers from this time period so much better at this? Yeah, than like seemingly any American filmmaker. Like <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it would if if uh, if Edwin S. Porter made this movie, it would be like three hours long, and less things would happen. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> well. Speaking of Edwin S. Porter.
0: We have uh, he, he made a ton of stuff this this year actually yeah um none of it is good as Great Train Robbery because he'll never reach nope. that nope.
1: peak. Um, the, that was a fluke. I I'm I'm sure of it. And <laughs> I, I I think some of it had to do with the the lead actor of that helped a lot with like the direction of it or like the, really? kind of the staging of it. Huh. And I I'm I I'm willing to go out on on a limb here and credit. That other guy, whose name I don't remember, with like a lot of why that movie is so much better than the rest of Headman Porters other work. Hmm. Cause it's it's wild how much better that is than yeah. literally everything else I've watched. <laughs> Before and since. <laughs> exactly. It's not like he learned from that and was like, Oh no, I'm making good stuff now. It's like he went right back into making like overly long garbage. <laughs> yeah, mess messily made garbage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think
0: I might have read somewhere that Edwin S. Porter considered himself less of an artist and more of, like, a technical
1: person, you know? Yeah, that makes sense to me. That mm-hmm. he's, like, he's more just likes cameras. Than yeah. And he's really interested in, like, telling a story. Yeah.
0: And he so. just kind of stumbled backwards into into mm-hmm. telling a good one with Great Train Robbery. And what did he make this year? The Little Train Robbery. Which is... Like a parody of the Great Train Robbery. Of his own movie from two yeah. years prior. Um The Great Train Robbery was so incredibly popular uh that he could just make this version, which was it's just the same movie yeah. with kids. Which yeah. is cute.
1: <laughs> it it is. Um and like it's it's not nearly as well made of a movie as Great Train Robbery is. No. But it is like It's 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 kind of fun. Because it's yeah. just, like, kids doing, like, cowboy stuff.
0: I don't think that it's any good on its own. But as a, a piece, like, responding to the cultural hugeness of Great Train Robbery, where the same director... I mean, imagine, like... I mean, imagine just, like, you know, uh, the Russo brothers just making kid avengers like two two years after avengers came out like that would be fun (laughs) which
1: i mean that is something i feel like the russo brothers would do like they're the people who would do it
0: (laughs) hmm maybe old era silly russo brothers instead of new era multi-bazillionaire russo brothers yeah
1: um yeah a crazier example would be like uh like kid inception also directed by christopher Oh, that would be so
0: funny (laughs) That would be really cute and really funny. Yeah. Um, anyway, this uh, is, you know, it's fun. It's cute. It's, yeah. it's, there's nothing special about it, really.
1: I, I will say this, it does still very much fall victim to Edwin S. Porter's incredibly protracted pacing of just showing everything in real time. Yeah. And never cutting. And it's like, this movie is like a full, like, four minutes longer than it needs to be. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for and sure. I think, and I think it's eight minutes long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ten minutes and 30 seconds, but yeah. Um, it's, all right, um... it's a full
1: five minutes longer than it needs to be, though. Like, it, it, <laughs> yeah. All the same scenes could be in it, and all the same things could happen, and you could cut out, like, half the screen time. You should make...
0: A re edited version yeah, of this Yeah, I should do that for all like, of his movies. Just cut it down.
1: Yeah. Just <laughs> that like, would be hey. that'd be
0: way too boring. Just pick pick one that you think you could make some big improvements to. That would be a fun yeah. project, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't I feel like it wouldn't even take long.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, he's like he's doing some more camera movement, which is something he does more of than a lot of other filmmakers mm-hmm. from this time. Um, the sort of like uh sort of filmmaking kind of jankiness of it combined with the fact that it's almost all kids definitely made it feel like a movie that like a bunch of kids went out and made in their backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Except it was made by yeah an adult man. Yeah. Um, um, and it there's like one adult actor in it that just made me think, oh, he's the dad <laughs> that they roped into being <laughs> in this.
0: Yeah. Uh, and i'll say the best touch in the movie it is roughly the same as great train robbery some robbers some robbers who are robber kids uh, stick up a train and then uh, all the people hey, like a, a miniature like theme park train that's the best part is that like it's it, instead of being the real train that they used in great train robbery it's one of those tiny little trains that you sit in the car and and it goes on this tiny little track uh, across <laughs> uh, around a theme park and uh, that that's wonderful. And then yeah. they like decouple the train cars in the same way uh, as as the original movie. But yes, extremely longwinded. Edwin mm-hmm. S. Porter. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of extremely his, longwinded, though. his his trademark. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Ugh.
1: Um. He also did a uh, an adaptation of The Night Before Christmas, mm-hmm. which was kind of fun. Yeah. Um. Kind of cool, like miniature shot, like we mentioned before. Um, of of Santa driving his his sleigh, yeah. Uh, from his castle, I guess. I guess Santa's got a castle, right? That's is that part of the lore normally?
0: Was that in it? Yeah, something. <laughs> Probably not. But uh... I
1: mean, well, because here it's shown as like like a straight up like medieval castle with mm-hmm. battlements and stuff. And I feel like it's usually whenever Santa's workshop or home is portrayed, it's usually like a more of a palace. Or, yeah. or maybe a like a fourth of Solitude Christmas-y. type yeah. thing. Whereas the yeah, this is like Santa's ready for a siege. Um <laughs> Oh yeah, and then Santa when gets when he gets down the chimney, he just kind of dumps the presents everywhere, and then like conjures a tree. He conjures a tree, huh? So this is the
0: yeah. Other, this is another Christmas movie from this era where people, but the tree is brought by Santa.
1: That's yeah so interesting that is
0: um that Dif- is very interesting. cultural differences between now and a um, hundred years ago. I thought also <laughs> it was funny at the beginning of the movie where you see, it starts with Santa, like, feeding the reindeer, but it doesn't mm-hmm. look like the North Pole at all. I mean, the North Pole was <laughs> still a relatively new concept to these people. In the news segments from a few years ago, we were talking about expeditions to the North Pole and all that. Mm. Um, to find Santa Claus. So maybe they just didn't know he yeah, had to find Santa Claus. Yeah, they're like, we don't know what it looks like up there. Because, yeah, they're just, like, in, like, a kind of... Uh, brown forest that, <laughs> that has like no snow in it which really seems incongruous it's with the, Santa uh, and Reindeer.
1: It's the oasis in in the at, at Perfect North. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, anyway, this is like considered the first adaptation of The Night Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got the text from the poem in intertitles. Yeah. Um, and which works well. Those, yeah, uh, they're funny how edwin s porter is so uh long-winded but those inner titles show up
1: only just barely long enough for you to read all of the <laughs> poem text um this also has sort of another kind of callback to great train robbery has a sort of like portrait style shot at the end um i sort of like just sort of portrait of santa without hmm. real any sort of narrative to it Hmm. um I am curious if it was like Great Train Rubbery, it was sort of intended to be able to go at the beginning or the end. Um, I don't know. I actually didn't notice that when
0: I watched it. Santa does not shoot the camera in this one, though. it would be Thank funny. With a, with a candy cane. <laughs> and he also made uh, The Kleptomaniac.
1: Yeah. Getting which... into some of his more, his more dramatic
0: work. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, we we went some we did some light porters, but um, porter light. This yeah. Nice
1: a nice a nice a local porter. Nice co- <laughs> uh ice cold uh locale porter.
0: <laughs> uh Yeah, so I mean one interesting thing that I think is happening and I guess we can get into the is with the, the the movies coming up, is that the Americans? I think this year are starting to attempt to do some more dramatic stuff uh, with more like real emotions. That's mm-hmm. not to say that they're succeeding, but eh. they're they're trying. Um, and I think maybe they're starting to carve out their own space a little bit. Um, where the French, you know, they're they're more fantastical. They're not necessarily dealing with like the grounded emotions mm. um well other
1: than zekka who is sort yes. of doing yeah that's true sort of similar kind of more dramatic kind of morality tales and such yeah
0: um but i with uh, uh edwin s porter and uh william mccutcheon or wallace mm-hmm. mccutcheon sorry right uh who's who started um directing co-directing movies with edwin s porter this mm-hmm. year they're reaching into some like dark subject matter. Uh, this yeah. is the least dark one. I would say that we're about to discuss. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, stuff that I'm kind of surprised they wanted to touch on, honestly. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're doing an okay job with it. Uh, but it's interesting that they're trying, um, and, and, uh, at least maybe they're doing something unique rather than um just being rip offs and boring people yeah <laughs>
1: um yeah the is is uh i don't know if you really call it like a morality tale but it um it follows two different women who steal who rob from i think the same like uh supposed to be like a um, like a like a Macy's, um, a department store. That's what they're called. Yeah. Um, this stuff he kind of follows, or like, is in kind of the a trend of movies from the early 1900s about like uh like social class and poverty and sort of uh yeah. wealth disparity. I guess. Yeah. Um. And, you know, we see this, this one uh, rich woman who just kind of goes to the store to steal stockings for the hell of it, seemingly. And then they sort of like...
0: Uh, yeah. Well, it's, but it's, it plays out her whole story. So she she's rich. She goes to the store to steal for fun. Then she gets caught and brought to the manager's office and then taken away by the cops. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to a poor woman
1: yeah. after that. Who also steals from, I think it's the same store. It might supposed to be a different place, but she also steals and also gets caught and yeah. taken away by the cops. And then we see like the courtroom of both of their trials. And uh, the uh, the the rich woman goes free because she has a good lawyer, <laughs> and the the poor woman gets locked up.
0: Yeah, because and, she's like,
1: and like her, her kid, you know, she,
0: she's poor, she's in rags, and she's like trying to feed her kid, basically. And uh, her kid is in the courtroom and pleads with the judge, and then like grabs her mom, and they pull her and her kid apart, and and then take her mom off to the slammer. Um, and then it ends with a, uh, a picture. It ends, oh, God, what was that movie that... Uh, the Zecca movie about the the strike. Um, it like the strike. It ends with a kind of symbolic figure at the end. In this case, it's justice with the scales mm. of justice, and then you see that the scales are tipped uh, with a money bag yeah. on one side. Um, so it's trying to say some stuff. Yeah. Um.
1: Um. And like I. Uh. This is like the the. <laughs> It's funny because I feel like both this and what was it the uh, the ex convict, I was sort of surprised by, I guess the kind of moral stance presented in these those two movies of like, mm-hmm. oh hey like someone kind of sticking up for the for the little guy al- almost. Um, yeah. And it's funny because the movies that we're about to talk about that Ernest Porter worked on, I do not feel the same way about. <laughs> <laughs> quite quite the opposite. Well. Um, uh, Yeah, we'll see about that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I want to be, like, trying to discern, like, his intent with these or sort of, like, trying to figure out what his, like, personal, like, beliefs were. Um, Uh But definitely sort of, I feel like the... uh, Just the the seeming intent of Kleptomaniac is one that I'm like... Oh, this is like a uh, a surprisingly, like, uh, socially conscious story to tell. Yeah, class 1900s. conscious.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, uh, it, sim- as is the case with Porter, it's very sloppily done.
1: Yes, um, extremely sloppy.
0: There... I, I had to I had to read a summary to figure out what was going on in front of my face. Uh, yeah. in in the movie, um, but. Once I understood what was going on, I was going okay, okay, good stuff, good stuff, Edwin. Uh, um, even if it wasn't actually good.
1: <laughs> I initially watched a weirdly like re-edited version on YouTube that was sh- parts of it were shown out of order, which made me think that the the two women were actually supposed to be the same character, which I thought was yeah. like a crazy. No, I was twist. confused by that too. And then i i uh, I read about it and I realized that that is not how it's supposed to be. And I found another version of it that is properly shown in the correct order and i was like oh no this is way clearer now so i don't want to hold that against him because that's some weird re-edit that happened after the fact huh um
0: yeah i mean another one we can talk about uh Um, which oh do you have anything else on this? i mean
1: uh just kind of rag on it a little bit um (laughs) the the scene of the rich woman stealing is is shown in this wide shot of like sort of the part of the store and it's crowded and we're, there's a, so much happening all on screen. There's like, I don't know, 12 to 15 actors on screen at once. Yeah. And we're supposed to pick out this one specific, uh, this one specific woman who's dressed identically to everyone else. Just like yeah. black Edwardian garb. Yeah, Honestly, I just tuned out, you know? Oh which yeah. Is, which I was like, this is just life... a scene of a crowd for yeah. like six minutes. <laughs> and then only it, going back and rewatching it, I was like, "Oh no, there is actual there's a whole scene happening here, but it's happening in this crowd of indistinguishable people." I, the, the, the,
0: this so this is becoming a bit of a problem for me, which I I guess I can come aside here and say is that like uh, the Edwin S. Porter movies are so hard to focus on um, mm. <laughs> because not only are they very. Long. They they just take their time with everything, and you just yeah. like you 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 lose focus because it just gets so boring with when a shot lasts for a minute and a half of nothing. Yeah.
1: Um Well, of of one thing, of like a single yeah.
0: action. Yeah. And and it takes. I mean, if you take the courtroom scene for example, uh, again with his lack of focus because it, it the first long segment of the courtroom scene is three or four other people who have nothing to do with this story getting sentenced yeah. and then it gets to the two main characters. It's a real,
1: it's a real Tommy
0: Wiseau moment. <laughs> um, but another thing is that outside of great train robbery, a lot of these Porter movies or Ed- Edison company movies are not very well, uh, widely seen or, or widely, mm-hmm. uh, uh, restored or that kind of thing and so a lot of them don't have soundtracks um a lot of these movies were watching completely silently which is not how silent film is meant to be watched no i
1: i put on some 80s new wave actually for a bunch of these which i think oh. sped up the pace of them quite a bit because yeah. specifically Edwin S. border movies i was like these are so slow they don't have soundtracks on them i'm just gonna put on some like some some chill music and- Honestly, that that's a good idea. I was thinking of doing
0: that because that is another thing that makes it really hard to focus on them and hard to just think about them clearly is they're meant to have music. And I've seen other people um, put just generic royalty-free music over yeah. these things that don't perfectly match up, but it does the trick. And it, the thing is that it's just playing them without music is makes a bad film even worse yeah and it makes a good film bad Mm -hmm. um and uh you know people think of silent movies as things that are intended to be watched silently but unless the visual storytelling chops are really there which is rarely the case especially for the americans Mm -hmm. um they're they're kind of hard to watch without music and so i yeah i should i
1: should put my own music on from now on Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I started out doing that, but with, like, I would look up kind of, like, generic ragtime piano, like, sort of era-appropriate stuff. Yeah. And I stopped doing that just because it's, like, there's, you look up ragtime music, there's, like, four songs that play um, over and over again. <laughs> and so I was just, I, I think I just had, I was already listening to, like, some 80s new wave music. And so I just kept that going. And it, it worked really well, because a lot of it's, A lot of it's kind of instrumental or sort of not very vocal heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it worked well as a, as a, and you know, it's like fast paced kind of, uh, not intense music, but it's like, it really kind of ups the, the, um, the pace a little bit, I think.
0: Nice. Uh, yeah, well. Our recommendation for watching Porter movies—that's that's that's a, that's a good on, idea. Put on I'm exciting gonna, music. Listen yeah, to the,
1: listen to the Mad Max: Fury Road soundtrack
0: while watching these. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely gonna start doing that. Um. And so one more uh, Edwin S. Porter movie that uh, is messily made, and I could only find completely silent, uh, was the Miller's Daughter.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, which is another thing that also it's very difficult to tell what's going on it's mm-hmm. actually ext- even more difficult than this one because it's relatively complex it's got a relatively complex plot that is not evident from what you're looking at
1: not um, remotely <laughs> <laughs> um it is also i think a this is one where i'm like the intent of this movie seems to be something that is bad and gross and i do not like um this one is co-directed by wallace uh not oh is is it yeah um the other the the previous porter movies we just talked about were were just him um this one he co-directed um but it is it's based on a i believe a a play or a or a I Short couldn't story? quite
0: tell, like, just, just some story that was going around. Yeah, I got yeah.
1: well, I was going to look it up, but I don't, we don't have time. Um, it's too, this podcast is too fast-paced to look things up. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: we're so fast-paced.
1: Um, and I'm kind of doing it the service because the the original story it's based on is... The title is, is the... Hazel the, Kirk. Hazel Kirk, the, the lead melodrama. character. melodrama. The lead character, Hazel Kirk, mm-hmm. right? Uh... This movie changes the title to The Miller's Daughter thereby making the movie kind of more about the Miller theoretically huh, who is just yeah. the mean dad in this movie who by the end is like proven correct kind of like yeah. the movie is on the side of the mean dad the whole time and it's 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 awful it's really it's really terrible You um, know I think
0: I, this is a time where people were waking up to class politics a bit, mm-hmm. but they were certainly not waking up to race or gender politics.
1: Not, well, not, not, uh, these guys apparently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cause yeah, the original story is, they completely changed the ending thereby like vindicating the mean dad, which doesn't happen in the original story. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's just like, oof, boy, oh boy. This is just not a, not a good look.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's vaguely also way what... too long and sloppily made, and yeah, all that. <laughs> uh, vaguely, what happens is that, um, uh, there is a there's a tramp who tr. So there's a, there's the Miller's daughter, a tramp. She's hanging out. A tramp Hazel. You can to... call her Hazel. Hazel. She
2: has a um, name.
0: Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, a tramp tries to uh. uh cozy up to her and and she's grossed out and so this guy who is known as the artist uh pushes him into the river and then says hey thank you're welcome for saving you and um and she ends up liking this guy then another man in another scene comes up and tries to propose to her and she says no uh and then later the artist and her kind of like sort of get together and they're they're fancying each other um and then uh smash cut oh and the dad is disapproving of this artist and he wants he wants her to be with the guys that she rebuffed a a Um, good a
1: good old farm boy as opposed to
0: the 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 hoity-toity artist from the city um and so she she uh says no to her dad she tries to be with the artist and then there's like a smash cut to a to the one title card or 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 intertitle that says wife and child of artists it turns (laughs) out that the artist has a wife and child this whole time and uh and the hazel is is shamed by by this this goings on and uh she and she tries to get the forgiveness of her dad, but he says no, and he closes the door on her. And then she, uh, you see her later, in, in rags and poor and destitute because she had the audacity to fall in love with the artist, um, and uh, she, and talking about the dark themes, oh boy, um, she uh, is she, she goes up to a bridge and tries and, and jumps off. Um, and then the, the good old boy, um, <laughs> sees that she's jumped off and rescues her. And then, uh, they, uh, two years, two years later, or a lapse of two years as yeah. described, <laughs> uh, she's happy and everything's good again because she did the right thing.
1: Yeah. She's it's, happy. Well, the dad is certainly happy. Yes. Uh, how happy she is, I guess, is sort of implied. But it is is—it is very much the implication that because you listened to the mean dad, she is now happy. Yeah. I don't have much um, to say about this except
0: that its morals are trash and the filmmaking is trash. Indeed. Same.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, of movies with... Uh, both moral and filmmaking trashiness.
0: Okay, you know what? <laughs> I'm actually kind of going to disagree with you on this. Oh. One. <laughs> so I think the movie that you're talking about is The White Caps. Indeed. Um, which was also directed by the duo of um, Porter and M- well, McCutcheon. Porter and McCutcheon. Um, and it is. Uh, so The White Caps, which I'd never heard of is a generic term for southern vigilantes who wear uh, who, who wear hoods who wear white hoods um, of which the Ku Klux Klan is only one example uh, and there were a there were a number of other groups that were white caps and there were just unassociated white caps uh, and it was it was this whole thing uh, that was happening. In the South for de- for decades, uh, and to defend this movie a little bit, right? Uh, the white the, the Ku Klux Klan did not exist at the time this movie came out. the The original Ku Klux Klan was long disbanded, um, and the the revived Ku Klux Klan was ten years from being recreated.
1: For reasons which we will get into at a, in on a future podcast episode.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so the white caps were violent vigilantes who uh for
1: for for good or ill
0: uh and I believe in the case of this movie for good. Um
1: that's the in- intention anyway. Yeah. Uh,
0: violently punished people who did bad things against the social order basically uh, which could end up being race based which was how the Ku Klux Klan happened but it was not necessarily the case and I think like often wasn't the case um so the movie looks incredibly icky because <laughs> because because it looks like a bunch of clan members uh, uh and it's like a it looks like a pro clan movie but I don't think it's trying to be. I think it's a victim of history. Um,
1: I mean, I, I, um, I don't know if either of us are really uh, a good authority on the subject of of the like the white caps and who they were. I read historically. the Wikipedia article. <laughs> Me too, but I mean, I definitely got the the general sense that while they, it was a general kind of like generic, violent vigilante movement um it in in most cases it was it came down to sort of uh racial violence as Mm. opposed to as opposed i mean it was like seen at the time was like oh like moral upstanding which was just like white people racist white people defending their land uh seemed to be like the main sort of uh cause of it um so i mean the movie is definitely portraying the the whitecaps in in the film as a sort of like morally correct group yeah which is just a bunch of garbage
0: um, well I mean yeah but in in the strict context of the movie let not leaving out the kind of broader context of yeah. racism in the strict context of the movie and and this is another you know piece of the dark themes that they're getting into is that there is uh, a man this this is more simple uh, than than the last one yeah. is that there is uh, some white caps go up to someone's house and they they put a warning sign on their house that says that the white caps are looking out are, are look are looking at you you know uh and we find out that a, a man comes home to the house and we find out that the reason why they um are are targeting him is because he uh abuses his wife um and he hits her and and knocks her down that kind of thing especially after seeing the sign that the white caps put up
1: which is like it's kind of shocking to see in this like this early of a movie of like a pretty like we've seen violence on on screen before but this is the most sort of like
0: it feels sober and real
1: yeah and And dark yeah it's really like ooh, yeah this is
0: intense I mean that's why i think there's i'm I'm somewhat impressed with this movie in comparison to some of the other ones is that you know if you take out the unfortunate associations with the clan right this is a movie that strictly by what is happening in the movie is somewhat morally upstanding it's 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 there is this horrible thing that's happening okay i don't know maybe this retributive justice is not correct
1: yeah i'm not sure if if the lynching is quite warranted they didn't lynch him didn't they?
0: No, they tarred him and feathered him.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, just that. I I don't know. <laughs> um, no, no, the, you're right. Um, I'm misremembering.
0: So, so to to finish the the summary, um, uh, they find out that he has beat his wife again, and they uh they grab him and they chase after him, and it's it becomes a long chase movie. But I think that it's a little more visually coherent and a little less slowly paced than a lot of Edwin S. Porter Mm -hmm. chases. Yeah. Um, and because like this guy sucks and you're about to watch him get beat up, it kind of like feels good, you know?
1: (laughs) I know, but Um, you're, you're seeing him get chased down by these like, I don't know, hooded, like white hooded dudes with like pitchforks and torches. And it's like, yikes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's yikes. Um, and they capture him they they tie him up they and they tar him and feather him and then i think they kind of just like keep him uh uh, uh like bound up and they like they like lead him on horseback back into the town and that's how the movie ends yes
1: yeah. i mean yeah it is in the in the strict context of just what is shown on screen in the movie there is uh i mean there there's no real r- racial stuff at all yeah, um, it's all white people. Yeah, it's 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 a white on white violence. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's still it it kind of has the vibe I thought of like um like a gritty revenge thriller kind of thing of like this crime yeah. is committed and then like we see a bunch of we see like a chase and kind of the villain get their comeuppance at the end.
0: Yeah, I saw someone online um draw a connection between this kind of masked vigilantism. And superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, how, you know, if you take out the fact that the Ku Klux Klan grew out of this movement, you could also consider superhero fiction to have grown out of this movement of, uh, you know, people hiding their identities to deliver violent vigilante justice.
1: Right. Um, which I actually think comes, well, I don't know, they, we can get into the whole thing of, like, superheroes versus pulp heroes and how, like, that evolution happened and things. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, like,
0: because
1: Superman doesn't wear a mask.
0: I suppose not. He wears his hair in different um,
1: directions and, and glasses. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that 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 lineage is definitely there and is, like, a, a, a real thing um, that is sort of uncomfortable to think about. But also, um, uh, I mean, the only time I've ever really seen that acknowledged is the HBO Watchmen show. Hmm. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that oh it's so good if if you're listening to this podcast go watch the hbo Watchmen show um
0: <laughs> well now i it's... have to listen to it because i now i have to watch it because i edit the podcast oh no <laughs>
1: um but yeah it like it really kind of tries to kind of uh i don't know necessarily reconcile with that but definitely like is one of the few bits of superhero fiction that really kind of like acknowledges that link i guess interesting
0: yeah that is really interesting um, yeah, I mean, I thought that, uh, so I wrote, I wrote down in my notes, I have no idea how to feel about this movie. <laughs> um, because I, I think, yeah, like we've been saying in context, in, in context, it's icky. Um, in, in, from a small point of view, it's Sli- well done.
1: Slightly less icky.
0: Yeah. It's, it's less icky. It's well done. And, uh, it, it, especially for an Edwin S. Porter movie. Um, and, uh, it's no great train robbery, but, you know, it's, it's much more coherent than, than anything
1: that he usually does. Yeah. Um, Um, speaking of more dark movies. Yeah. Seriously. (laughs) Oh man. This, this year really got, got dark, huh? Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, Wallace McCutcheon, who co-directed Miller's Daughter and The White Caps, uh, solo directed a film called The Nihilist. Yeah, this was just,
0: this was, he used to work for a Biograph, and this was the first movie, the last movie that he made for Biograph, and then when he started working for Edison right after this, uh, he started co-directing with Edwin S. Porter. So he actually did this before those other ones. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but yes, it's The Nihilists. Uh, we yeah. believe in nothing. <laughs>
1: um, my first note for this one is it's pretty dark. It is Which yeah. is true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is, um it's based on the the nihilist movement that was happening in Russia at the time, which uh, is not nihilist in the philosophical sense. Uh, it's not about like existential nihilism. It's about uh, a rejection of like a lot of forms of authority, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of tied into anarchism and just general um revolutionary, Stuff um, it was going on from like the 1850s or so until like the until the beginning of the USSR, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah it's it's an American movie that's set in Russia. so there's a there's a family and the the husband is uh, I guess being spied on and is captured by the Russian police mm-hmm. uh, and they violently interrogate him and flog him and kill him. Uh, they take, or they take him to, they take him to Siberia. Yeah. Uh, and they march him through the snow and, and he dies. Um, and his wife tries to avenge him. Uh, she's, she's upset at his, at his death. And so she joins the nihilist movement and she's like sworn into the nihilist movement.
1: In like a, a, tavern basement where they have a skull and crossbones up on the wall. To show yeah. that, to show that they're true edge lords,
0: <laughs> to show that they truly believe in nothing. Yeah, um, and uh, so the nihilists tell her to start engaging in terrorist violence, and um, the the movie is on her
1: side. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I mean, this is the, one where I feel like it doesn't really shy away from kind of showing the, like, violent acts of, like, revolution. Yeah, I mean, or this like, movie's
0: full of, like, misery and violence. Yeah,
1: I mean, it, it. I do think it definitely takes a side of the nihilists in the story,
2: mm-hmm. if it's
1: taking a side at all. But I also think it's not, it's not, like, it doesn't really feel like propaganda, necessarily. No, um, I, I, but, I mean, it feels like,
0: it, it feels like the kleptomaniac, in that it's trying to, it's got a... a it's got a stance,
1: but it's not trying to like yeah. Or something. Yeah. Um I also think it's funny that I mean, it's probably because this movie's about Russia, but it's one of the films we didn't talk about that uh Wallace McCutcheon co directed is uh Life of an American Policeman, which is I guess a sort of spiritual sequel of sorts to the uh Life of an American fireman. Um but way more like propaganda. Propagandist, I guess, like, hmm. cops are great. Look at them save people. Um, in, in like, a really silly way. Hmm. Um, like, because it's 1905, and it's just, like, they're they're not really solving any crimes. They're just kind of, like, trying to help people, but they're not even doing a very good job at it. Um, I just have tons of notes about why this one is, like, they aren't even good at their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, you know, that's, it's a very sort of, like, oh, man, like, policemen are cool kind of movie. Hmm. And then this one, he's like, oh, yeah, the secret police are going to show up to your house and kill your family, and then you have to <laughs> throw bombs at them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, she, like, a, a couple of the schemes that she is involved in is uh, she kind of um, stops a carriage, and she she assists in stopping a carriage to try and, like, shoot the people in the carriage uh, the, as part of this kind of, like, three-person team uh and one of the, one of the other people dies uh and then she goes on to a second mission where she goes into a government building and then throws a bomb at <laughs> uh at some government officials and they die, and the whole building's blown up, and she just like kind of poses in victory and then dies, yeah, and like that's the movie what yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> like intense. These,
0: these American movies are dark, right oh now. yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, Melies is off making his, his fairy tale films with dragons and, and yeah, skeleton and fights and the car are like, races. Oh, and then a bomb blows up and everyone dies. <laughs> um, yeah. It is <laughs> I hadn't quite like I don't know, made that like um, that comparison before this of like how different the European and American films are in their like story. T- the like the types of stories they're telling, I guess,
0: I mean, I think it really made itself evident this year more than any other,
1: yeah, yeah, for sure, um I quite enjoyed the nihilist, I thought it was yeah, much more competently put together than any of the border stuff that I watched from mm-hmm. this year, yeah, um, it seems like McCutcheon is definitely the guy kind of pushing the more like coherent narrative stuff. Um, right. Between the two of them, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely had to like do a little bit of background reading about it. I mean, there are, I think, at least two like Im- scenes of kind of impassioned speeches happening in this movie, and they're mm-hmm. both just silent. They're both just kind of people gesticulating, and it's like I guess they're saying something important right now, but yeah, I um, mean, this, this,
0: that by the way is another problem with the american long-windedness is that they have these scenes of people talking for a long time yeah and you don't
1: know what they're saying yeah (laughs) so what's the point which i mean the 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 european sort of way around that is just don't have people talk just have everything be pantomimed which works much better in a silent film yeah um yeah the american stuff he seemed to be like they're like, oh, yeah, and then there's, like, a whole scene of dialogue, and they're, <laughs> they're just, like... You, don't, you don't know what it is, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one had some fun intertitles. There's uh, the one, I think, right before she goes to blow up the, the, the building. And it, it just says, Vengeance! With an exclamation point. Yeah. Um, which is my favorite type of intertitle, which is just sort of telling you kind of how to feel. <laughs> it's like, this is the vengeance part.
0: Yeah, I think I think before her her husband was getting tortured. It said something like Russian justice. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> which
1: was really good. Yeah, um, yeah, and it it is also funny to think about the fact that it it's being made by Americans who are just like reading about this stuff happens. Like, Ooh, let's this sounds juicy. Yeah, let's make a movie out of it. huh <sighs> well, um.
0: We got anything else for the Americans?
1: Um, not really. All right.
0: Um, we're almost around in the corner here a, on this a, very long podcast. Yeah,
1: a, a couple of British films that we can rattle off real quick. Um, Cecil Hepworth, mm-hmm. uh, co-directed a film with uh Lewin Fitz Fitzhamon, uh, called "Rescued by Rover." which is a sort of proto-Lassie film.
0: It's literally the words that I wrote, proto-Lassie. yeah.
1: Um, which was wildly popular at the time. Not Lassie, yeah. but like this film, for good reason. And it's just a, a good, good dog. Uh, yeah. A collie. It's a,
0: it's a romp. It is a collie, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's got elements of chase film because it's just a lot of like back and forth action. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Too much back and forth action. Yeah, it's fair. a little...
0: But. It's a little long-winded um but uh I I, I at least something's happening at all yeah. moments. Uh basically a a, bre- a a baby is stolen out of a a, a pram while yeah. while this lady isn't looking by this like crone who has a drinking problem basically. <laughs> <laughs> um and then the the family's all distraught and the family dog it's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to the rescue. And then so the dog tracks down the baby and leads the dad to the crone's apartment. Um and then and it's what's kind of just like a hovel in an attic or something like that. Yeah. And uh he takes he takes the baby back from her and and she's just like, eh, win some, lose lose some, you know. And then like <laughs> and then she just like goes back to drinking. She doesn't even like try and stop him or anything.
2: At that point she
1: was she was too far
0: too hammered to even do anything about it yeah and then they're happy and yeah. um uh but the reason why it's so long-winded is because the dog leaves the house goes through a bunch of places finds the uh goes to a bunch of houses to track down the smell of the baby finds the baby uh walks back through all of those things gets the dad then leads the dad all
1: the way back through right. all of those things yeah. again um which there could probably be some like funny gags hidden in there because you're seeing a three a, a thing three times, but they don't. It's just seeing the same thing three times. You know? Yeah. Um, a couple fun facts about this film. Uh, mm-hmm. Supposedly, this is the first like dog movie star, and that mm. like the dog in this movie became incredibly famous. Yeah. Um, like the actual dog became like a, a celebrity. Um, that. Supposedly this is the first time that's ever happened. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, one thing that is true, I guess, is that the film was so popular that they they wore out the original negative, making copies from it. Oh, and they, wow. And they refilmed the entire movie again. And this happened twice.
0: What? That's, I had no idea. That's, that's crazy. how
1: popular this movie It was watched so many times by so many different people that they had to film it three whole times because the negatives wore out. That's
0: wild. Whoa. Yeah. That's super that's super interesting.
1: Yeah. In insane. Um there's also a uh, Robert W. Paul directed uh, a fun kind of slapstick chase film called The Unfortunate Policeman. Mm. Um and yeah, well well staged uh a kind of very classic like silent film guy getting chased by by the cop. Like, through yep. a bunch of goofy scenes. It reminded me very much of a film that I made in college. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, like... It's another one where it's just, like, see, Americans, like, this is how you film something. Like, it's quick, it's to the point. Like, yeah.
2: get it in, get of, out.
0: It might have been, like, three scenes, kind of a rule of threes comedically. Um, the whole thing is, like, the, the person is getting away and the cop keeps like running into people and making those people mad at the cop yeah and then and those will
2: so... also are
0: all start chasing the cop yeah it's and so when the person gets away they all beat up on the cop <laughs> instead of the instead of the thief
1: <laughs> um yeah uh just like so silly so like it it feels like such a kind of classical like silent film comedy yeah um which I think is gonna start being more from the little bit that I like read ahead, I think we're gonna start getting into that more and more of like hmm. the kind of classical era of silent comedy is good. It's getting we're seeing the, the start of it. I'm so
0: antsy for some Buster Keaton. Yeah, no me video. too.
1: Um Uh what are their little there was a, a Zeke movie called Down the Coal mines, which is a sort of coal miner drama, which is very tragic um but it's not really anything that we haven't really seen before
0: yeah it's a little long-winded uh it does some cool stuff with uh the tinting of the yeah uh above ground being black and white uh below ground being tinted green mm-hmm. and uh there's a the disaster that happens is that someone strikes water underneath and floods the mine and a bunch of people die and the flooded mine is as uh, tinted as blue
1: yeah, um, cool movie. Yeah, um, there was I watched part of, uh, because the only part of it survives, uh, the Taking of Rome, which is, yeah, partially lost, but is supposedly the oldest surviving Italian production, like Italian made film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uh,
0: it, it's pretty big, pretty big scenes and sets. Mm-hmm. Outdoor
1: films and all that um the director uh uh Albarini, if I'm not portraying his name too badly um I didn't even know this, patented the first Italian motion picture camera like at almost the exact same time as the Lumiere brothers like was developing it concurrently, but the Lumiere got the jump on the patent, so they got like the technical first motion picture camera patent whoa but alberini was kind of doing the same thing at the same time but patented his like a couple months later what and then waited 10 years to make a movie (laughs) no he's he's been making stuff but i think it's we've we've just kind of it's been kind of lost in the shuffle because he hasn't really done anything that impressive i guess i don't know but if it, if this is the first um, Italian production then wouldn't well oldest surviving Italian production oh. Um, oh okay I think he was doing like actualities and stuff before this but uh, I see I think they're all just lost and I, I also think he he he's one of those guys that was coming at it from more of like a scientific perspective mm-hmm um, more than like a storytelling perspective um, but uh yeah it's kind of a, a historical epic which um again, from like taking a little bit of reading ahead, is going to become more of a thing with Italian films. That's kind of their early bread and butter. It's like big mm. historical epics, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I guess that's about it.
0: Okay. Uh, well, that's the end of our 1905 episode.
1: Yeah. Uh, we... big, big milestone next, next episode. Tune in to find out what it is. We won't tell you. I don't even know what it is.
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, And that's why it's one week, one year. Because I don't cheat and look ahead. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. uh, uh, Like, comment, and subscribe or whatever. Um, uh, We have a YouTube version that I told you about at the beginning. Uh, You should check it out. Uh, And... That's about you got to actually it. see
1: all of the goofy things we're talking about instead of yeah. just hearing
0: us describe them, which is all the goofy and also somber and serious things. Yeah, in, in, things in the that case for the about.
1: in the case for this episode, all of the very dark and quite somber things that we're talking <laughs> about. All right, well, Glenn, I'll see you in 1906. Adios. Bye. My nagging wife kept all of his toys None of his friends did he ever join Rip down, winkle, red down, winkle Sleep, sleep, sleep Those little alphabos on the green tree, tree,
0: tree Oh, well, he left his nagging wife now He slept for twenty